Please turn now in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We read a number of verses already from Mark 14. And I want to read now beginning at verse 51 from Mark chapter 14. I said 51, I meant 50. I want to bring in uh, verse 50 there. It says, And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. The high priest stood up in their midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So I've titled this section of scripture, Jesus' Unjust Trial. And here Mark is recording the events that took place in the last hours of Jesus' life. It's Thursday evening on that last week of his life, and Jesus has had the last supper with his disciples, connecting his body and blood with the bread and wine of the Passover. It was clear that he knew he was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world. He knew that his body, his blood would be given on the cross for the atonement of our sins. And after supper, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he spent time in prayer. And we see there that he was in agony, knowing that his atoning work was soon going to climax with his death on the cross. As he prayed, he was less than nine hours away from being nailed to the cross. We see that he didn't spend the hours leading up to his crucifixion resting, perhaps reminiscing with his disciples over their good times together or enjoying a last meal of his favorite fruit foods, but the suffering of the Lord actually escalated during these hours leading up to his crucifixion. One of the things that added to the Lord's struggle was that in these last hours, um, he, he was subjected to this illegal, unjust treatment. And uh, this was very physically and emotionally painful as his religious leaders of the church there, the the enemies, his enemies, had their way with him. What added to Jesus' suffering was the fact that he suffered alone. Verse 50 says it rather bluntly when it says about his disciples, and they all left him and fled. 
As the religious leaders came with the authorities to arrest Jesus, the disciples fled and Jesus was left there to fend for himself. But as the disciples fled, there was a young man who was there watching, following Jesus, presumably from a distance, but close enough that this mob noticed him and they seized him. As they grabbed him, he slipped out of his clothing and ran away naked. So who is this young man and why does Mark record this? And by the way, this is the, Mark is the only gospel writer who even says anything about this, this young man. And it should be clearly stated that we don't know for sure who this young man is, and yet there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that would indicate that this young man is Mark himself, the author of this gospel. There are a number of circumstantial evidences that are actually quite convincing. I'm not going to go into all of those this morning, but I would have you think about this linen cloth. This is part of the the evidence, the circumstantial evidence. I'd have you think about this linen cloth that was wrapped around this young man. Scholars say that this is what rich people wore when sleeping. This This linen cloth was like pajamas, if you will. And this means that this young man somehow came to be awakened from his sleep and began to follow Jesus. And so I would, I would draw your attention to a theory which is widely accepted that Jesus and his disciples had celebrated the Passover, the Last Supper, in the home of Mark's mother. So this is what may have happened as scholars try to put everything together. It's thought that Jesus and his disciples were there in the upper room of this house, which means that Mark was downstairs. And due to the late hour of the night, he was likely asleep. And as Jesus and his disciples left to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps Mark woke up. And for whatever reason, maybe simple curiosity, he followed them and saw Jesus get arrested. Another possible scenario is that when Jesus and the disciples left the house, Mark was still sleeping. And suddenly Judas and his mob knocked on the door, as this is where perhaps Judas at first assumed Jesus would be. And when Jesus wasn't there, Judas guessed that he had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, for that was a common place for him to have gone. And so he led the mob there. And Mark then followed the mob as they continued to look for Jesus and, of course, found him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So then what is the significance of this event recorded by Mark? under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even if this isn't Mark, but some other young man. Well, this event brings out the murderous intent of this mob that had come against Jesus. The way the disciples fled, even armed Peter, who was no pushover, shows that this mob was very intimidating. It's clear that the religious authorities mean business. And this young man, Mark or not, probably assumed that since he wasn't overtly connected to Jesus, he could follow along. But by seizing him, it was evident that the religious leaders did not want any eyewitnesses to what they were doing. And yet there was this eyewitness. And what happened to him confirms the reports of the other gospel writers of the murderous and evil intent of this mob. And what we are then left with is the the truth that Jesus remained in the hands of this mob while everyone else fled for their lives. And one barely got away, but Jesus was captured. And not only that, we are left once again to contemplate how our Savior is suffering alone. Not even a friendly observer was able to fully see what was being done to our Savior in the shadows of darkness. What we do know of the events that night are due to the eyewitness accounts of John and Peter, 
And while these men initially fled, apparently they turned back. They were determined to find out what was going to happen to Jesus. And there were really three parts to the Jewish trial of Jesus that took place that night before his crucifixion. First, Jesus had a preliminary trial at the home of Annas, former high priest and father-in-law to the high priest Caiaphas. And that part of the trial was witnessed by the apostle John. And then Jesus was brought to the palace of Caiaphas. And John was known to the high priest. And by some special leverage, John gained access to the inner court. And John was able to then speak to the doorkeeper. And Peter was granted access to the inner courtyard. And then the third phase of the Jewish trial took place on Friday morning with the greeting uh, with the uh, with the time with the Sanhedrin. Mark deals really only with phases two and three, and this morning's verses are dealing with phase two, which is Jesus' trial at the home of Caiaphas. And what happened that night is really hardly worth the name trial, for there was really nothing legal about it. The religious leaders were determined to to find out the truth about who Jesus was. Um, not really. Um, it, they, they, were, they were trying to give that appearance, but they all knew that no real crime had been committed. In fact, they had originally no intention of even trying Jesus. Back in verse 1 of chapter 14, it says the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And when they hired Judas to be his betrayer, their plan was to find Jesus in some secluded place and to kill him secretly. Another key part of their plan we learned from verse 2 is that they didn't want to do this during the time of the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So there were a lot of people there in Jerusalem for Passover. It would be best to wait until the crowds had diminished. That was their plan. So what changed it? Well, apparently Jesus' words to Judas in the upper room, by which he made clear to Judas that he knew their evil plans. He openly spoke of how he would be be betrayed by one of the twelve. And he spoke directly to Judas to go and do what he must do. And Judas left the upper room and apparently met with the religious leaders and told them something to the effect that their plans were out in the open. And at that point, they had to make a split-second decision about what to do. It was one of those now-or-never moments. And with the crowds in Jerusalem, they, they couldn't just murder Jesus. It would have to be in the way of a legal proceeding. And if the religious leaders can pronounce a guilty sentence on him, well, the people may not like it, but they will be compelled to comply. So there are three things I want to bring to your attention this morning in connection with these verses. First of all, the unjust trial. Second, Jesus' clear proclamation of who he is. And then third, the sinful condemnation of Jesus for who he is. Now, I could spend easily the entire sermon this morning on all of the different ways that Jesus' trial was illegal and unjust. I just want to summarize, hit some of the main points. And I begin, first of all, with pointing out that they didn't come to the trial because certain charges had been filed that needed to be investigated. There is absolutely nothing here of innocent until proven guilty. Verse 55 tells us that uh, what the so-called trial was all about, the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest religious body of the Jews, 
They were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were determined at the onset of the trial to stick Jesus with charges worthy of death. And verse 55 also adds that they couldn't find any testimony, that is any credible testimony, against Jesus. So it's clear that the outcome of this trial had already been determined before it began. Everything was done in the wrong order, because normally there would be charges filed with the authorities by credible witnesses. A warrant would be put out for the accused's arrest. A trial would be conducted with clear charges presented to the defendant, witnesses testifying on both sides, and then a judgment made. But instead, Jesus is arrested without charges and even brought to trial with no witnesses and no charges, at least at first. That first of all. And then second, eventually witnesses were put forward, but they did not agree. They were not well-schooled in their lying. Um, The Jewish courts normally placed great importance on witnesses in a fair trial. Witnesses were normally examined separately and Their testimonies had to agree before they would be admitted into court. But in Jesus' trial, after the first round of witnesses came forward and everything flopped, more witnesses came forward and they also failed. The second set reported Jesus claimed to rebuild the temple in three days, but even they could not agree on the details of what supposedly Jesus said. Matthew actually has a witness quoting Jesus as saying, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Mark records a witness saying Jesus, uh, saying of Jesus, I will destroy this temple. The witness also adds the words about the temple made with hands being replaced by a temple not made with hands. That these witnesses were testifying in court and contradicting each other was very irregular, and this should have led to an immediate release of Jesus. And then third, Jesus is asked to incriminate himself. The leaders demand that he answer his accusers even though they've contradicted themselves. Well, it's because the leaders are hoping that he's going to say something that will trap himself. But Jesus remained silent, and by this silence, he was refusing to give any legitimacy to these illegal proceedings. His silence was a way of heaping burning coals on the heads of his accusers. But more than that, Jesus was not there to defend himself. He was determined to be our savior, and to that end, he knew that he must be condemned by this body. This would be the way to the cross. And it was his silence that drew things to a head and led to the question of all questions, a question that he was willing to answer. I, priest in a rage, asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And it was important that it all come out what the trial of Jesus was truly about, the real issue. The real issue is his claim to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, a claim these religious leaders were determined not to believe. In the minds of these religious leaders, there was absolutely no possibility that Jesus was the Christ, and they were hoping to condemn Jesus for blasphemy from his own mouth. And then fourth, these proceedings were illegally convened. It was against the law for a Jewish court to meet at night, And also the law dictated that whenever the Sanhedrin held a trial involving capital punishment, it was to be held in the temple in public. But we see that Jesus' trial was held at night in Caiaphas' house, while Peter and others had to stay in the courtyard. 
And fifth, what was supposedly a court of law degenerated into a free-for-all of abusers. After verbally sentencing Jesus to death for blasphemy, they physically and verbally turned on him. By the way, Jewish law said that a sentence of death could not be carried out until the third day after it was rendered. In the intervening days, the members of the court were to fast. And uh, this had the effect of preventing a trial during a feast when fasting was prohibited. The delay of execution also provided an opportunity for the judges to reconsider their sentence of guilt. But all of this was ignored in Jesus' case. These men of the court immediately sentenced him and then turned on him, spitting in his face, which was a supreme insult in that culture. They beat him with their fists. They mocked him. And in what amounts to tragic irony, Luke tells us that these religious leaders were the ones who were blaspheming. For there is no greater way to show disrespect to God than to personally lash out against his incarnate son. Jesus subjected himself to the abuse of these enemies. He humbly and silently bore their mockery and attacks. This was in fulfillment of prophecy such as Isaiah 53, 7, where it says he opened not his mouth. The only remark he made was an answer to the question of the high priest, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus, Jesus felt compelled to answer this question because this was the real issue at hand. And Caiaphas and the others must clearly hear the answer. It's true that over the years leading up to this moment, Jesus, by his miracles and by his teaching, had made it clear enough that he was the son of David and the son of God, the Messiah. At the same time, he had not openly and explicitly declared, I am the Messiah. But now Jesus states the matter openly so that his trial will not get sidetracked from what is the real issue that is to be investigated and to be considered. The problem with Jesus all began with his claim to be the Messiah. If Jesus is a mere man claiming to be the Messiah, then the accusation of blasphemy applies. And uh, this is, of course, the sentence the religious leaders won in order to justify their refusal to heed Jesus' teaching. They hate him for how he has more than once unveiled their self-righteousness. He has called them, and they are, they're the holy people of Israel, and yet he called them to repentance. I say that the holy people, sarcastically, because of the hardness of their hearts, they are unwilling to humble themselves. They are unwilling to admit that they are in need of Jesus' saving work on behalf of sinners, giving them a righteousness that they don't have on their own. They're not interested in any of that. They cannot admit you see that Jesus is the Messiah without also admitting that all of the law keeping that they have trusted in for eternal life is worthless. Of course, if Jesus truly is the Messiah, the religious leaders are making a huge mistake. And by telling them who he is and making this claim in what was presumably a court of law, these prosecutors were obligated to investigate the validity of Jesus' claim. By Jesus' answer, they were forced to reckon once and for all with the question, is Jesus the Messiah? And as all of the evidence says he is, the question becomes, what are you going to do with the Son of God when he walks among you? How will you treat him? Will you submit to him in repentance and faith? And so what was the content of Jesus' answer to these religious leaders? When asked if he was the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, he said, matter-of-factly, I am. 
saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. The words I am, of course, would bring to mind the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, which means I am. So Jesus was saying, I am all of these things. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed. I am Yahweh himself. And then to make things even clearer, Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So to be seated at the right hand of power means that Jesus is claiming to be David's Lord. Remember the one mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 1. To be seated at the right hand of power means to exercise the power and rule of God himself as one equal to God. To claim to be one coming on the clouds of heaven is to claim to be the son of man mentioned in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. The one who would receive from God an everlasting kingdom over all the nations. These are clear Old Testament references to the Messiah that Jesus now claims refer to him. Notice that Jesus is not saying that he is the Son of Man and David's Lord's, but and David's Lord, but that these religious leaders will see him as such. They will know. They will absolutely know that he is these things. John Calvin writes of this. He says Jesus affirms that he is the Christ, not for the purpose of avoiding death, but rather of inflaming the rage of his enemies against him. Though at that time he was exposed to contempt and almost annihilated by his mean garb, he announces that at the proper time he will at length come with royal majesty, that they may tremble uh, before the judge, whom they now refuse to acknowledge as the author of salvation. The meaning, therefore, is that they are widely mistaken if from his present appearance they form a judgment of what he is, because it is necessary that he should be humbled and almost reduced to nothing before he appear adorned with the emblems of his royal power and with magnificent splendor, end quote. Matthew records Jesus as saying, hereafter, or from now on, you will see me in the glory of the Messiah. So Jesus is indicating that a change is about to take place. He has been during the entirety of his earthly ministry up to this point, in a state of humiliation, with only glimmerings of glory revealed here and there. But with his death, he will begin to enter into an estate of exaltation. There will be the miracles of Calvary, his resurrection, ascension to the Father's right hand, Pentecost, and one day his bodily visible return. These men will see these evidences of his exaltation. Maybe they did not see all of these particular parts of his exaltation, but they for sure saw Christ. He was their judge at the time that they died. They stood before him and had to give an account of themselves. And they will also see him come on the clouds of heaven at the end of time, for that is a time when every eye will see him and every tongue will be compelled, compelled to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus' words are words of grave warning to these leaders. He is telling them that one day they are going to see, they are going to be undoubtedly confronted with the truth of who he is. And they will not be rid of him by simply putting him to death. He is the Messiah, and they will know it in their own experience. It's clear at the outcome of Jesus' trial that he was 
not condemned on the basis of any accusation brought by witnesses. All of the attempts to do that fell apart. It is to the condemnation of the Jewish leaders that they did not put Jesus to death on the basis of any criminal, moral, or spiritual fault in his life. They tried to come up with charges. They sought witnesses. The clear impression is that they did their best to find dirt on Jesus. And surely they, they would have condemned him on the basis of some sin if they could have found anything wrong in him. In the end, Jesus is condemned on the basis of his own words. He provided the issue, you see, by which he was condemned. If he had kept silent, his enemies would not have had any basis for condemning him to death. And we can see into the hypocritical hearts of these men that they want to appear right. They have this standard of righteousness that they want to maintain, even as they unjustly condemn the Son of God. They want the appearance of a trial with charges and witnesses. And when it becomes evident that these proceedings do not even have the basic appearance of of propriety, they shift gears. They get another set of witnesses. They finally question Jesus directly. Why? Why not just kill him? Why not just condemn him without this legal facade? Why the concern over these appearances? This is because these men have oriented their lives around how they appear. This is the nature of their righteousness. Their righteousness is an external keeping of the law. Their righteousness is a keeping of the law devoid of any concern for motives and intentions. And so this trial brings out what kind of men they really are. They're not concerned with actual justice and righteousness. They're concerned with how they will be perceived. And they want to be able to stand as a group before the nation of the Jews and with one voice be able to honestly say, this is what Jesus says. And the law says that this makes him worthy of death. They want it to be straightforward. To be able to say, all heard him say it, case closed. And so when Jesus admitted to being the Messiah, this was exactly what the religious leaders were hoping for. Things could not have turned out better as far as these religious leaders were concerned. I agree with John MacArthur, who has written that when the high priest tore his robes, this was not out of grief or indignation over the presumed dishonor of God's name, but rather out of relief and joy that Jesus had condemned himself out of his own mouth. By this rather dramatic display of tearing his robes, Caiaphas gave the appearance of defending God's name, but inwardly he gloated over the victory that they had just pulled off. And so in the end, Jesus was condemned. Why? For being the Messiah. The religious leaders put to death the Son of God because they didn't want a Savior who had come to save sinners who are helpless to save themselves. They wanted a Messiah who would come and raise them to glory, who would praise them for their good works and bring their nation to economic and political glory. And they were prepared to share in the glory of the Messiah as his right-hand men. And as these religious leaders over a period of some three years were able to examine the Lord Jesus Christ, to see his miracles, to, to see his perfect life, to hear his teaching, it's clear that his claims to be the Messiah were completely believable. In fact, I would argue that they committed the unpardonable sin in knowing that he was the Christ and yet turning against him. Their hatred of him can only be explained as the enmity of sinners against God. If Jesus was a mere man, 
there would have been sin at which the religious leaders could have pointed. No, Jesus was condemned because he claimed to be the Messiah and because sinful man was unwilling to honestly evaluate the facts of the case. For what had Jesus done that had invalidated his claim? Nothing. And what had he done to substantiate his claim? Many things. And in the end, Jesus' trial only proved his innocence and proved the guilt of his accusers. It proved Jesus' innocence, and this is how it must be, so that all the world can know that Jesus did not die for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. And the guilt of his accusers was proven. His unjust death at the hands of men the world considered righteous proves how sinful we actually are. The world's best are sinners who need this Savior. And so this history strips away all of the the last vestige of man's pride. For we tend to think that if anyone is going to go to heaven, it's the religious people who belong to the church. It was, in fact, the leaders of the church who crucified Christ. What does that tell us? Religious devotion and dedication to a life of good works is not enough. Even the most religious people in the world need Christ. And indeed, all must reckon with Christ. And all must seek his righteousness if they are to be saved. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we acknowledge uh, through this trial of how sinful we are by nature, how sinful man is, that knowing that Jesus was your son, knowing that he was the Messiah, they refused to submit to him, for it was too important to their pride, too important to our pride naturally, uh, to, to not want to admit that we need a Savior, that we do not have a righteousness of our own. Father, thank you for opening up our hearts to, to see our sin, to see our failures, to see our lack of righteousness, and to see in Christ the righteousness that we need. Father, we thank you that for his willingness to go to the cross, to there suffer as our Savior, to suffer in our place, taking the punishment that our sins deserve. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus was willing to undergo this great humiliation and this injustice for our sakes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.